Welcome to the Davy Tree Expert Companies podcast, Talking Trees. I'm your host, Doug Oster. Each week, our expert arborists share advice on seasonal tree care, how to make your trees thrive, arborists' favorite trees, and much, much more. Tune in every Thursday to learn more, because here at the Talking Trees podcast, we know trees are the answer. This week, it's part two of our lawn discussion with Zane Raddenbush. He's the turf grass and herbicide specialist for the Davy Tree Expert Company. And Zane, I wanted to start off with a question I received from a listener and see what you would do in this situation. Yeah. He has a very small backyard, 7,500 square feet, and it's all clay, and they're struggling to grow grass, thinking of adding organic matter or maybe gypsum. What would you do? One, I would take a soil test. So I would start there and make sure that you're not missing anything. Again, is there an odd pH piece on one of those extreme ends, really high or low? Is there a deficiency, potential deficiency piece? And I'd be looking for, is there any, you know, organic matter at the surface? So, you know, when you take a soil, if you take a knife and cut into the soil, you know, we want to see the upper parts of that surface being dark. Rich in organic matter should be a really dark color. And then typically, like where we are in Cleveland, a few inches down, we start to get into that really heavy clay. If that clay is right at the surface, that there is no nice organic matter layer, uh, that might be where we really start to lean into amending the soil with organic matter. You mentioned gypsum. Definitely gypsum is a great uh, soil amendment for heavy clay soil. So gypsum is calcium sulfate. So if you look at lime, calcitic lime would be calcium carbonate. So both are adding calcium to the soil and that calcium being a, a positively charged ion, the negatively charged clay particles are attracted to it. And that's what begins to get the soil kind of balling together, creating colloids, which creates structure. The challenge with lime is because it's not that soluble. That takes a long time to happen. You know, it doesn't break down right away versus gypsum is much more soluble and you can get that process to happen a lot faster. And so, yeah, gypsum would definitely be a recommendation that I probably would make in that particular scenario of adding gypsum. Let's see if you can lightly incorporate it right at the soil surface with like a York rake or something to kind of to scarify the surface, get it lightly incorporated into there. Uh, you could certainly look at other amendments, things that are compost, biochar. Um, you have to be careful. I think sometimes people, it's been, and I have made this mistake too, of you can create layers in the soil if you just go out there and just dump a bunch of, of different material on top of the soil, you know, that you'll just create two distinctive soil layers. And whenever you create layers in the soil, in general, good, good things do not happen. You can have issues with water retention, water infiltration. Uh, and so it's always kind of nice to find a way to get those two interfaces to kind of be mixed a little bit. Um, so, yeah, that's a challenging one, Doug. You know, heavy clay soils, um, it, there's no easy answer there for sure. But gypsum would definitely be a great recommendation in that particular instance. Gypsum is going to help create a little bit more structure, a little bit more porosity at the soil. And you can put it on very heavy. <laughs> you can add a lot of gypsum. Well, that question actually came from a friend in Ohio. So, <laughs> oh, Well, yeah, up here in where, where you know I live in the Worcester, Cleveland area, we see really heavy clay soil, some of them what they call that blue clay, which uh, I wasn't that familiar with before I moved here, but blue clay is something that they actually kind of mine and, and they use it to line 
the bottom of irrigation ponds. So they'll take that blue clay and they'll put it on at the bottom of an irrigation pond because it literally does not let water pass through it. So um, imagine trying to grow turf in an area where water won't move through the soil profile. And then also there's, you know, it can set up like concrete and it's just hard to get good rooting. It, it is a challenge, clay soils. Well, let's talk a little bit about fertilization because that's uh, something we see a lot uh, of in all sorts of different applications for the lawn. First off, you don't want to overdo it, right? The lawn can only take so much fertilizer and it, what what it can't take, it's going in the storm sewer, right? Absolutely. Absolutely, Doug. Couldn't, couldn't have said it better. In terms of going in the storm sewer, that part is where turf grass shines. If you put fertilizer on a turf grass system, you know, it. one of the best things that grasses do is they really reduce the surface movement of water. And so there's been a lot of studies that show you put the fertilizer on the turf grass, it does not leave there on in surface water. Um, the challenge is you get people without proper training that apply it to impervious surfaces and don't blow them off. There's That most certainly does, unfortunately, reach the stormwater system. But you had a good point there about, and you're kind of getting at it, is to kind of match, match the fertilizer demands of the plant. So we're not ideally in a perfect world. We would only apply the amount of fertilizer of what the plant can use and what it needs. You know, applying more is wasteful. And so certainly you can overdo it. And I see that done a lot in the spring, you know, that uh, plants don't need a lot of help to get going in the spring. You know, if you're someone that's on a, that takes care of your lawn, you're into your property and you fertilize multiple times per year, you know that in the spring, those plants will jump out of the ground and you could mow every three or four days. And so uh, sometimes I see people get, they, they overdo it in the spring months with nitrogen and that can, that can have some negative effects. The plant focuses all its energy into producing lots of shoot growth and, and can have an underdeveloped root system. So, you know, for me as a fertilization standpoint in the spring, a little bit of, a little bit of nitrogen in the spring can help to promote early spring green up, but you don't, need to put it on super heavy oppositely though doug you know um if you're a new like maybe you just purchased a lawn you know purchased a new home and the lawn is in really poor shape really thin has never been fertilized that's where you could you, you know you could put a little bit more down in the spring months to try to promote more growth more density um but yes as it relates to turf grass fertilization more is not always better and in fact more can often have detrimental effects, particularly in the spring months when the plants are already putting lots of resources into growing shoots. So high nitrogen, balanced fertilizer, what are you thinking when we get to the right time? When would you recommend a, you know, the, the heavier fertilization of a lawn and what should yeah. you be fertilizing it with? You know, most of the fertilization for a cool season lawn should be happening in the fall. So okay. believe it or not, that that is a beautiful time to fertilize because the plant is putting all its energy into survival, which is in the root system. So they're putting a lot more energy in the fall to developing that root system. And not all that energy is put into new shoots. So when you apply fertilizer, ideally what you're trying to do is promote some density and to grow a really nice vigorous root system. And then the fall, we see that that happens. Uh, in the spring months, 
It's all about trying to crowd out the, the people around you. You're trying to develop a canopy to, to reduce competition from weeds. And so in the spring months, we see that you can apply less nitrogen. I typically don't recommend more than a half a pound, uh, sometimes three quarters of a pound of nitrogen per thousand square feet. Um, in the fall months, that could be closer to a pound of nitrogen per thousand square feet. So in terms of the seasons, Doug, you know, you think about spring, summer, fall, uh, most of the fertilization should be happening there in the fall months. In the spring, the one thing about fertilization is often we use fertilizers that are impregnated with our crabgrass pre-emergent, you know, that we are applying a fertilizer that has the material that prevents the germination of crabgrass on it. So sometimes that material dictates the timing a little bit more. So for me, I don't like to fertilize when the grass isn't going to use it. So like right now, things are not growing where we are in Worcester, Ohio. I'm not going to go out and fertilize my lawn right now. I'm going to wait until I see things really begin to start growing. So we've, we've got a little ways to go yet. But um, I, in the spring, I like to wait until things begin to grow. And I'm just going to apply a little bit, about a half pound of nitrogen per thousand square feet. And then in the summer months, if I wish I had a chart to show this, but in the summer months, the grass really begins to slow down its growth rate because of the air temperature. And you all know this if you mow your own lawn that sometimes in the summer months, you could go weeks or even a month, really, if you wanted to without mowing. And so applying a bunch of fertilizer at a time when the plant isn't growing results in kind of what you're talking about, the potential where it could get you know, tied up in the soil or leached down past the root zone. You know, most of the roots of a turf grass system are hanging right there in the upper three inches. And so, you know, if you apply a bunch of fertilizer that can move down past that, the plants can't take it up. So the summer months is a time where if you're going to fertilize, you don't need to apply a lot because the plants aren't growing a lot. They're not going to extract a lot of nutrients from the soil. That's a great time to use some of your organic sources or really slow release nutrient sources like poultry litter sources. These would be low analysis fertilizers, Doug. They could be like an 822, an 824 uh, versus you might see more synthetic sources could be like a 1905, you know, where you're having higher nutrient analysis. So uh, you asked about what would the proper analysis look like? And this is where you really cannot answer that question without a soil test. I mean, okay. people want me to do it all the time. But the one that doesn't change, Doug, is nitrogen. I have a pretty good idea of what the nitrogen demand is going to be for the turf grass system based on the year. But the phosphorus and potassium, that's where uh, you know, a soil test could reveal how much of those you need and if you need to apply them at all. I, I get a lot of soil tests, Doug, where very adequate amounts of, of phosphorus and potassium, and we can just get away from using those at all in that fertilization program, save the customers some money, let them take that money and invest it in other parts of the landscape. So if I'm thinking about overseeding or I need to seed, what should those soil temperatures be at when when in Ohio and when in the East here is the best time to do that? I, if I'm putting any seed down, I'm always looking at the weather and I want, I want that to be followed by three days of rain. That's my huh. idea. Is that right or wrong? Or what do you think it? Yeah. 50 degrees is a pretty cardinal temperature for seeing things happen from a, a germination standpoint for, for turf. Um, so I'm, I'm always watching the soil temperatures like you, if you're going to seed, you want to get, you want to get some water on it right away. But what I always tell people in the spring is that the challenge for spring seedings is that the soils are cool. You know, we have the rainfall, but when you think about uh, plants germinating 
and growing vigorously, developing a canopy, the soil temperature is actually what drives a lot of that. And so that's why we really always recommend seeding in the late summer, early fall, because you still have the elevated soil temperatures, but you get the nice, the, the cooler nights, the reduced air temperature. So you're able to get things to germinate fast. They grow more rapidly, but you don't have all the disease pressure of the high temperatures. Oppositely in the spring, we have the rainfall component. So that's nice, like you're talking about, but the soils are cold, they're cool. So, it, you know, instead of plants germinating in five or six days, it might take 10 to 14 days. And even when they do germinate, they're going to grow more slowly. Um, so I'm not telling people not to overseed in the spring. It's just to recognize that your timeline is going to have to be longer. Um, so for me, you know, I'm watching the soil temperatures. Um, if you're going to do seedings in the spring, definitely for me, I would use a you know perennial ryegrass is, is a species that germinates quickly. It can establish quickly. Uh, it has there are definitely issues with perennial ryegrass, but in the spring months, it's kind of a go-to because it, it just it germinates and establishes so much more quickly. So you know if you're going to go out there and, and and do that kind of work, if you are on any kind of a lawn care program, really important that you communicate with your provider that they don't go out there and apply pre-emergent to your lawn before you've had an opportunity to put down this seed. You know, if you put down a pre-emergent, it's gonna inhibit the germination of your turf grass seed. So, you know, if you're somebody that's in that position, uh, and you're kind of teeing this up, Doug, is that once, this, once the weather begins to break for us, that's where you right away wanna get out there, prep a seed bed, get the seed down. I'm a big fan of putting some kind of um, a cover on it, whether it would be, you know, potentially straw or a compost or we even I mean the professionals we sometimes use grow blankets as a way to keep the moisture i like compost a lot of times it's real dark in color so it's going to help to warm the soils up hold some moisture um, but just recognize that if you do this don't get frustrated after seven days or like where's the seed why is it not germinated it's going to probably be more around that 10 to 14 day range for a spring seeding so uh, but now is the time doug don't wait if you're somebody whose yard is thin, you have, you know, patches, stump, you know, maybe you had a tree removed and, you know, stump work, whatever it might be. If you have seeding to be done, get on that right away. Because what you don't want to do is, you know, all of a sudden you wait till maybe let's say it's mid-May and you want to go out and do that seeding work. Those young plants are going to germinate and get thrown into the dog days of summer. <laughs> and that's a recipe to have to redo it again in the fall. So if you're gonna do this work, you wanna get on it early uh, so that those plants have as much opportunity to mature before they're kind of thrown into the fire of summer. All right, I have kind of a three-part question here. Importance, right. of a sharp, importance of a sharp blade, how high, how high should I cut my grass and what should I do with the what's left over after I'm done cutting? Okay, these are, these are great great topics, Doug. So mower blade sharpness, key. I mean, you definitely want to start the season with a sharp mower blade because, you're, again, we're going to get all this flush of growth. The, your mower is going to mow more grass in the next two months than it might mow the rest of the season. When you, Particularly if you're someone that has a, a mulching mower, you know, where it's going to grind those clippings up a bunch of times. You know, it's not just as simple as they're cut once and ejected from the mower. You know, those mowers are grinding those clippings up many, many times. And so you need the blade to be really sharp to get a good quality of cut. And, and really, I like to see people sharpen their blades twice per year. 
And I like to see them do that second one, believe it or not, right after all that surge growth is done in the spring. So start your season off with a sharp blade, and this is where it's going to mow a majority of its grass and then get it freshened up right there before summer. Because in the summer months, we don't mow as much turf. Um, and it's just able to, the turf, the summer months is such a stressful time that what you don't want to do is uh, take a blade that was good in the spring, have it mow all this flush growth in the spring months, and then kind of run that same blade through the summer. You'll see that the summer months is when it's stressful. That's when we want the highest, highest quality cut. And then also to make sure your mower deck is really clean. That's an important piece. So we always kind of focus on the, the blade, but these decks are designed in a way that they create a vacuum. So they actually create some vacuum to, to stand the leaf blades up as the mower rides across it. And if your deck's full of you know leaf clippings, you don't get the proper vacuum and you often get really poor mulching. If you have a mulching mower and the deck is not cleaned, you're gonna see it's gonna struggle. That's where you know the mower is really struggling. It wants to stall. And uh, yeah, so sharp blades, paramount. Get a sharp, balanced blade. So, you know, if you're, if you're new to this, you want to make sure that your blade is balanced. So you don't want to remove a bunch of material off one side of the blade and not remove the same amount of material from the other side. So a real simple way to balance a blade is just to hang it on a nail and you'll see the heavy side will drop to the bottom. If you take it to professional, they'll do all this for you. But if you're, if you're a DIYer, um, you know, get it uh, and you're sharpening your blade, make sure you balance it afterwards. Make sure you install it the right way. You'd be surprised, Doug, how many people I see put blades on backwards. So <laughs> um, they put it on upside down and then you're going to be, you know, it's going to be spinning with the dull side hitting the turf. Um, so yeah, sharp blade to start with. And then this is a really key piece, Doug, is that um, the mowing frequency should match the growth rate. And so in the spring, when turf is growing really vigorously, you're going to have to tighten the mowing interval. You shouldn't be someone that just says, you know what, I'm going to mow once per week. I mow on Tuesdays because that's when I mow and that's when I want to do it. If you're someone that does it that way, you're missing an opportunity to really have the best looking turf you possibly could have. Because in the spring, uh, the, the mowing frequency often has to get tighter, maybe every four or five days, believe it or not. And if you have the ability to do that, uh, you'll see you get much better texture, a little finer texture, and you get better density by being able to increase the mowing frequency in the spring months. And then the summer, when the grass slows down, then we can extend sometimes the mowing frequency out to 10 or 14 days. And that's where if you're someone that says, I still mow on Tuesdays, you could be actually potentially doing some damage um, in the summer months there when plants are drought stressed and heat stressed uh, by going out there and excessively mowing them. And then the last one is the mowing height. So this is this is paramount. This is something I I hammer with our customers uh, and with our sales folks is that in general, the I see Doug that we can't get our customers to mow the lawns high enough. Uh, there's a real there's an appetite to kind of want that really manicured look and people just start to mow too short. And so I train our people to use what I call the credit card tool, the credit card trick, where if you have a credit card, which most of us all do, um, a credit card is about three and a quarter inches in height. And so uh, this is a really great way. Take your credit card, stick it down in the turf grass canopy and see, see, you know, after you've mowed, how much of that card is, is sticking out of the turf. In general, I like to see people mowing above two and a half, closer to three inches. So, you know, after you mow the turf and you stick this credit card down and you should see that, you know, there's only a little bit of the cards protruding above 
the canopy. You know, if you see half of the credit card sticking out of the turf canopy after you've mowed, you're mowing too short. Um, and so increasing the mowing height is a really great way uh, to improve turf grass quality. There's a direct relationship, Doug, between the mowing height and the rooting depth. So the, the higher you're able to mow the turf, generally the deeper and uh, the deeper the root system is going to be. So uh, people who scalp the yard or mow too close, they have poor developed roots. And I see a lot more weedy issues in those lawns, lots of creeping weeds. So this is where you can have issues with nimble will, bent grass, um, annual bluegrass. So there's a lot of weeds that really thrive. And bent grass is the one I see most often. So bent grass gets into people's lawns and it just loves being mowed at those. It's not a very good competitor at lower mowing heights or at higher mowing heights, I'm sorry. So people that mow too low have a lot of issues with bent grass. It's just able to creep you know, across the lawn, you get these really well-defined patches of it. So uh, yeah, as it relates to mowing sharp blade, make sure that the, your frequency changes with the growth rate of the turf. If the turf is growing really vigorously, then you need to mow more frequently. And as the growth slows down in the summer months, you can begin to decrease the mowing frequency. And so this is something professionals do, sports field managers, golf course superintendents, that mowing frequency changes with the seasons. And then uh, to get the height dialed in, it's the, it's, that's the most common frequent offense I see with our customers is that they're, they're typically mowing too low, very seldom. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen it, Doug. I've been to one of our customers' lawns. I'm like, wow, you're mowing too too high. You, should, you, know, you know, we need to reduce the mowing height. I've never seen that. It's only the opposite. Too low, too low. And what about the grass clippings? Let's say you don't have a mulching mower. What am I supposed to do about those? Yeah, I, if you, in general, we want to return those clippings back to the lawn. So, you know, in those clippings is a bunch of nutrients. You know, that there's a bunch of nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium. And so if you're removing those clippings by bagging them, that lawn is going to have a higher nutrient requirement. It's going to have a higher fertilization requirement than a lawn where the clippings are getting returned. And returning those clippings is adding that organic matter. You know, that's that's a key piece to soil health. It's food for all the microbes. And so if you are bagging those clippings off, you're going to see that you have a higher fertilization requirement. You potentially may have a lower organic matter. Uh, but I understand there are times where it is nice to remove the clippings, particularly in the spring, um, where you could end up with a lot of clippings sitting on the surface. So that's definitely a big no-no. What you don't want to do is windrow a bunch of clippings and leave them sit on the surface. Uh, it's going to shade out the plants under it. They'll begin to rot. And so if you're someone that you know has a, a side ejection mower, um, you really have to be careful about windrowing, where you're going to get you know, a, a really dense amount of clippings that, that shade out the canopy under it. That can sometimes be helped by the way that you mow. So, you know, one thing, if you're someone that likes to stripe the turf and you have a side ejection mower deck, at some point you're going to be mowing over the clippings that you just discharged. If that makes sense. If you can kind of picture you're going back and forth, eventually you're going to have to mow back over the clippings that you discharge. And that's where you start to get that wind rowing effect versus if you're constantly kind of mowing in like a, it's not, it wouldn't be a circular pattern, but um, you're always mowing a fresh pass that doesn't have clippings discharged in it. That can be a way to help disperse the clippings a little bit better. So for me, if I would think about that, it'd be kind of be going down, I'd, I'd move over and come back and you kind of create like a rectangular pattern. Um, 
you know, if you are someone that wants to stripe your yard and you do end up wind rowing, if you have a blower, backpack blower, that's a great way. Just go disperse the clippings quickly, just blow them and kind of fan them out a little bit. Um, if you want to rake them, that is an option, but I'm all about returning the clippings back to the yard. So I typically don't like to, to take that resource, remove it and send it to a landfill. You're, you're actually, uh, you're, you're removing a really precious and valuable resource from the turf grass canopy. So if, if you have the ability, uh, I like to return the clippings back to the, back to the canopy. I have one more question before I let you go. I think the weed is called nutgrass. Is that right? Nutsedge? Yeah. How mm. do, how does, how is that to be dealt with? Because I think it's absolutely impossible. <laughs> it's a great question, Doug. Nutsedge is definitely, if I had to think of like the top three most troublesome weeds and turf grass systems, I think nutsedge would be in there every time. So the thing that is challenging about nutsedge is the way that it reproduces. So nutsedge does produce seeds. And for the listeners out there, um, identifying nutsedge, this is a plant that will emerge, you know, typically in mid-May to late May and, and kind of your neck of the woods, Doug. And sedges have triangular stems. So if you kind of like, what is that plant? If you pick it up and look at it and you roll it in your fingers, you'll feel that the stems are triangular. So that's a good way to help ID this plant. But the way that it, the way that it reproduces is why it's so troublesome because it does produce seeds, but that's not how this plant really survives in the landscape. It produces these underground tubers or what we call nutlets. And that's the real troublesome part. So what, what here's a scenario for you. Uh, you, you bring in a bunch of soil to establish a yard. That soil is contaminated with nutsedge, has a bunch of these nutlet tubers in them. This is very common. I see this a lot of when you bring soil in, you bring in these nutlets with it. Uh, you see that that first year, wow, I have a lot of nutsedge issues and, um, you let those plants mature. Maybe you try to treat them, do something about them. Uh, but recognize when those plants get big, they've already produced many, many nutlets in the soil. So the next year's crop has already been established in the soil. It's there already when those plants are mature. So this is where I sometimes hear people say, hey, pulling nutsedge actually makes it worse. Not true. The, the thing about pulling nutsedge is, is if it's big enough to probably pull, it's already dispersed those nutlets in the soil. When you pull the plants out, you don't get the nutlets and so it's already there. So the thing about nutsedge, Doug, is that there are some really good selective herbicides that you could apply that will control the nutsedge and not the grasses. The key is that you have to control it. You have to apply these products when the nutsedge is small. So when you have young plants that have not had an opportunity to produce those nutlets, if you let them get big and mature and you treat them, yes, you'll burn down the leaf tissue and you'll be like, yeah, I got control. But the whole the whole nutlet bank in the in the soil's already been established and you'll have to deal with those plants next year. So unfortunately, Doug, the thing about nutsedge is it's a multiple season thing because if you're someone that inherits this problem, uh, there's probably a good amount of them in the soil that you'll have to deal with for a couple years. And if you're someone that gets to it late, you know, you you take control when the plants are big, they've already put nutlets in the soil. So the key to nutsedge control is two things. Uh, get control early when they're first emerging, which will kind of be in that mid to late May timeframe. 
and then uh, make sure culturally that you're not doing anything to sabotage it. I see nutsedge thrive in over irrigated lawns. So that's often another common thread that I find, Doug, is people who just uh, uh, over irrigate have a lot of nutsedge problems on their properties. So there are selective control tools. If you're going to use them, though, timing is everything and you need to get timing early and you probably have to be prepared to do that for two seasons. Well, Zane, we're out of time. I could seriously, and we say this almost every time <laughs> you and I talk, I could talk another hour. We've got so much more to cover, but I want to bring you back in the fall. I, I realized from talking to you that we need to talk about this in the fall because so many of the jobs that we've talked about today are best at, at that time. And you know you're talking to a, a great turf expert when you look in the background and you see two microscopes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, they they haven't been used much lately, but in the summer months, you know, looking at a lot of samples, Doug, I'd love to come back. And I think timing wise, I'd love to do it in the middle of summer because some of these things that we're talking about take some time to plan. It takes time to take soil samples and get results back and get the supplies. And so uh, ideally, you know, that might be something that we tee up there and, and kind of mid late July it gives people some time if they want to do some of these practices to get their ducks in a row and execute them at that right time. Well, we'll make it happen, Zane. That's a great idea. We'll do it this summer. And as always, thanks for all this great information. It was just wonderful. Yeah, awesome. Great to see you, buddy. It's always great to catch up with Zane. Now, tune in every Thursday to the Talking Trees podcast from the Davy Tree Expert Company. I'm your host, Doug Oster. And do me a favor, subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode And do you have an idea for a show or maybe a comment? Well, send me an email to podcasts, that's plural, at davy.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at D-A-V-E-Y dot com. And as always, we like to remind you on the Talking Trees podcast, trees are the answer.